0: Dr. Shannon Sovendahl with Match on a Fire, Medicine & More podcast. Let the healing begin. Hi, I'm Dr. Shannon Sovendahl. Welcome to Match on a Fire, Medicine & More podcast. I'm sitting next to my awesome wife who is kind enough to do a podcast on our anniversary. It's actually our anniversary today. You won't hear the podcast on our anniversary, but we're recording the podcast on our anniversary. That's true. You so excited?
1: So excited. That's way longer than I thought I'd stick around for.
0: (laughs) Yeah. We're in trouble. We're in big trouble. Anyway, today we are going to talk about stroke, CVA. How's that sound, Steph? Sounds great. Can't wait. Let's hear your uh, definition of stroke from paramedic school.
1: You're asking me to go way back. So the definition I remember is any kind of interruption of blood flow to your noggin.
0: Yeah, that sounds perfect. Stroke is a brain attack, same as a heart attack. Right, we just have a different word for it, but the heart's not getting enough oxygen or nutrients and you have a heart attack, you damage heart tissue, leaks out into the blood, we test your bone and all that stuff and we determine that you had a heart attack. The same is true when you have a brain attack. There's not blood or nutrients getting to the tissue of the brain and that causes your brain to die. Bummer. So inherent in the definition is that there's some sudden loss of focal brain function. And that's really what we're trying to determine when we do our neuro exam. When we look at a patient to see where are they having a malfunction? You know, stroke's a big problem in the U S there's about 795,000 people a year that have stroke. 130,000 people die of stroke each year, which is crazy to think about right now with COVID because we're above
1: numbers and thinking about it. We're above the
0: stroke deaths from COVID at the moment. So every four minutes, someone is having a stroke in the U S that's a pretty significant disease process.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting too, because when we were looking at numbers of CBAs in the United States, it said there's like 55,000 more women affected than men each year. And so I don't know. I don't know if that's because, you know, often women are on medications that can increase clotting, you know, birth control, and there's a lot of women on that. So I don't know if like birth control, smoking, same kind of thing that we worry about with PE population is also attributing to women being more affected. But
0: yeah, I think it's. It's interesting because more men have heart attacks, but more women have strokes. And it's probably multifactorial, the women, the reasons for it. And I don't know those specifically. Yep, me neither. So I thought that we would kind of go through the terminology of stroke because when I was actually a med student, I was confused by these different terms that people were using because sometimes they would say patients having a CVA or they're having a stroke or they're having a brain bleed. And then they seem to interchange these terms. And so it was a little confusing for me. So I want to break it down kind of so we can think through. What are these terms that we're using in medicine? So let's start by talking about a CVA, a cerebral vascular accident, and that is a stroke. Those are synonymous terms. When we break down a CVA, we can have two different types of CVA. We can have a hemorrhagic CVA, or we can have an ischemic CVA. And we can break those down further. So let's do the ischemic first, because that is more common. So we have a stroke. We're going to say it's an ischemic stroke. There are three different causes of an ischemic stroke. The first is thrombotic. That means that you have a clot forming in that blood vessel in your brain, and it's preventing flow and nutrients getting to the brain tissue. The second type of ischemic CVA is an embolic stroke. That means that you had a clot somewhere else, and it floated up into your brain. So say you had atrial fibrillation, and it went through your heart and went back up into your brain, you can have an embolic CVA then the last type is you can have just low blood pressure causing an ischemic cva so if i were shot in a trauma patient on the ground and i get resuscitated uh, and i go to the icu and when i start to come to i realize that i can't move my right side and that might be because i had such poor flow from losing all of my blood there was no flow to my brain which caused my brain tissue to have a stroke and so again when we look at these types of cva or types of stroke We classify them into hemorrhagic and ischemic. We just broke down the ischemic stroke into thrombotic, embolic, and then one that's just caused by low blood pressure. So let's look at the hemorrhagic stroke. So there's really two classes of hemorrhagic stroke. You can have a subarachnoid hemorrhage. That's blood leaking into the subarachnoid space. The most common reason of this is someone having an aneurysm, and that aneurysm blows, and then they have a subarachnoid hemorrhage. I always think of a particular... Patient that I had when I talk about subarachnoid hemorrhage, I had this young guy who came into the emergency department because he was having sex, and then he all of a sudden had a deficit. I
1: remember. And the thing this, about
0: this is, we know that that is a risk factor for having a subarachnoid hemorrhage. If you have an aneurysm, the aneurysm wall can be weak. So if you do cocaine or lift strenuous weights, strenuous
1: exercise, yeah, or yeah. have
0: sex, all of these things can cause the pressure to go up, and then you have a stroke. So we would always joke like, "What if you're lifting weights? You know, having sex on cocaine?" you're at high rate, very high risk risk for having a subarachnoid stroke. But the reason I'm telling this story is because this is no joke. This guy had the stroke. He was young. And this girl, his girlfriend was with him in the ER. And she was like strutting through the ER. Like she was a runway model when she kind of walked out. And me and the other PA that were sitting there looked at her. And I looked at him and said, she's just really cocky because she literally blew his his mind. mind. Yeah, literally, like it was crazy. I don't know if that's appropriate for a podcast, but it it is a true story. So we have CVA, we're talking about ischemic, and now we're talking about hemorrhagic stroke. So we talked about two different types of hemorrhagic stroke, or we're going to talk about the second type. The first is subarachnoid hemorrhage, and then the second is intracranial hemorrhage. That's when the tissue in the brain actually bleeds. And so again, looking at this whole kind of picture of what these terms mean, we have stroke or CVA, we classify that as either hemorrhagic or ischemic. The ischemic, we break down into thrombotic, embolic, and low blood pressure. And then the hemorrhagic stroke, we break down into subarachnoid hemorrhage or intracranial hemorrhage. The one thing we haven't talked about is dissection. And when someone has a dissection in their blood vessel's going to their brain, they can actually suffer from either an ischemic stroke or a hemorrhagic stroke. So both of those um, conditions can kind of happen because they had a dissection. So if I dissect my blood vessel and it's bleeding, it can cause me to have a subarachnoid. If I dissect that blood vessel and the flap blocks flow, then I would be having an ischemic stroke from the dissection.
1: And those are often carotid arteries, right, that you're referring to when you talk about those vessels?
0: Yes and no, meaning we we talk about dissection. And remember, a dissection or an aneurysm can happen anywhere Anywhere. in the body. So the carotid is certainly a place that we look, and it's very problematic because it's a big blood vessel supplying your brain. Uh, but you can also have vertebral dissection, you can have basilar artery dissection. And so all of those locations are still classified within this dissection.
1: And those can happen. Those type of injuries can happen often after MVAs, right? When people are wearing their seatbelt and their seatbelt will cause injury to those neck vessels and they'll later have a stroke. Is that... I've
0: yeah, absolutely. That? And even, um, you know, the, the kind of whiplash effect can have it. You know, we've talked about this in depth because I was involved in a, in a lawsuit with... um dissection of the neck. And, you know, looking at the data, essentially, you can get a dissection of the neck from anything, from just bumping your neck. They even use the comment of like brushing your hair. I don't know if you remember that, like, oh, she brushed her hair. You could have a stroke. Yeah. So certainly, you know, if you're prone to have a dissection, meaning you have weak vessels or you're having a predisposed issue, such as using cocaine or drugs and things like that, you know, that puts you at a higher risk to have either a hemorrhagic or an ischemic stroke. And what category is more common, ischemic or hemorrhagic? Yeah, by far, ischemic stroke outweighs hemorrhagic stroke. It's about 80 to 20. So 80% ischemic, 20% hemorrhagic.
1: And I think that's important to keep in mind for when we talk about some of our treatment and care of these is that more often for sure than not, it's ischemic that we're going to be seeing in the field,
0: right? Yeah. And you can, you know, I, I feel like I'm not perfect at this, but when you look at a patient, you can kind of get an idea whether you think this is an ischemic stroke or hemorrhagic stroke. And for me, you know, more commonly a hemorrhagic stroke will have a severe headache. You can get a headache in an ischemic stroke, but it's just more common in the hemorrhagic stroke. And a lot of times those patients just look really ill, like they're vomiting. They're kind of in distress. Whereas a patient with an ischemic stroke, they might not be able to move their face or they might not be able to talk, but they don't necessarily look like they're in such distress. And so that's a simple way. Obviously the CT scan is going to confirm this for us, but that's, that's a simple way when I'm looking at them. Yep. Okay. So remember when you're treating stroke, whether you're pre-hospital or you're in the ER, it's all about time. Like time is brain.
1: Time is tissue.
0: Yeah, for sure. So, So this condition is truly time dependent, meaning we talk about the golden hour and trauma and all these other things, but having a heart attack, having a stroke, right? That tissue is dying the longer we're not intervening. And so really what I want you to keep in mind when you're treating these patients, especially in the pre-hospital setting, is the most important thing that you can manage on this patient really is time. So Steph, when you uh, get called to a potential stroke patient and you're on scene, what's going through your mind? What are you thinking about?
1: Well, there's definitely a, a few priorities just walking in the door. So of course you're walking up to them and you're assessing sick, not sick from the door. But then you know, I'll have my team the biggest things that I ask for them to do is I get, have somebody, I delegate right away a blood sugar. So as they're working on the blood sugar, I also ask, you know, generally it's a company officer, but another member of the team to figure out a time frame for me of last, you know, last time they saw that patient normal. And then I go straight to doing a neuroassessment. So that all, hopefully all three of those things come together at the same time. Once again, should be within minutes so that we can go ahead and call that stroke alert or not and start moving towards the hospital.
0: What I love about what you said is that you're doing things in parallel, not serial. And yeah. it drives me crazy, like in the ER and emergency settings, when, when things are always done in serial, that means that we're going to do A- and then we move once in a linear fashion, we completed A, we move to B. And then once we finish B, we move to C. And that's that's something happening in serial. What we're talking about in parallel is I have multiple pathways going on at the same time. And so if you have multiple people helping you do this, you're getting back to the key component, which is, you know, time is brain, time is tissue. Let's get a move on. And obviously, with any patient, as you said, you come to the door, sick, not sick, airway, breathing, circulation. Obviously, those come first. And then you get to D, right? You get A. Airway, B, breathing, C, circulation, D, disability. Now we're at the stroke, right? And so when you come to a lot of stroke patients, right? You, you handled A, B, and C because they're kind of sitting there, looking confused, trying to talk, and you're like, okay, their airway's intact, they're they're breathing, and they I feel their pulse, they're not clammy, they have a circulation. I'm on to D.
1: Yeah, often I think in that ischemic category that you're talking about, often their airway and breathing seem to be pretty patent. It is those hemorrhagic strokes that I often will see, hey, we may need to intervene with this airway. They're vomiting or they're obtunded, and then you do need to deal with airway before you get to the rest of that assessment. But in that 80% of the population where we're generally seeing the ischemic stroke, absolutely, we try to get things done in parallel. And that's a conversation that we have in route to those calls too, if they come in as possible stroke, I'm already starting to delegate tasks out to my team because I know those are my initial things I need to get done quick so we can start moving quick.
0: So let's talk a little bit about what else you have to worry about on scene. So we did the ABC, we get to disability. You talked about doing a blood glucose quickly. Obviously, as soon as you make that determination that you think this is a stroke, you're moving to the pram to get into the ambulance so you're on scene a b and c is done you're doing disability you do the cincinnati scale which we'll go over in a second and they have a significant facial droop at that point your decision is made right we are moving to the hospital at this point and i'm going to get as much done in route as i can but with the premise i'm moving to the hospital and again you know as, as a medical director i don't expect the crews to be able to do everything and i'm definitely not for them holding up or taking time to get more things done, like that's not uh, what we're looking for here. We're looking for, hey, we've determined that this patient is a stroke alert. I'm getting him in the ambulance. I'm going to start doing the next task that I need to do en route. And if the hospital's a minute away and I don't get much done, that's fine because we're all on on time.
1: Yeah, I see that happen all the time in QA, QI process that I'm involved in is people will stay on scene because they feel like, hey, we are only a minute away. I need to have all this stuff done before I get to the ER. Like I need bilateral 18 gauges in the AC. And they will stall because they feel like they can't show up to the ER without these few checklist items done. But we're really doing a disservice for our patients with that. So, you know, once again, kind of what it looks like for me is I try to delegate before we even arrive. You walk in, you say sick, not sick, just from your general impression. I will right away just you know introduce myself, but do a neuro exam while my partner is getting a glucose, and we're getting a, a time frame. Once those come together, as the team is loading the patient, I'll actually make my phone call then. If it is a stroke alert, I will you know I'll contact the facility, get that stroke alert called so they can start act, you know moving stuff on their side. We will then in the ambulance. That's when I'm gonna do my interventions, and really all my interventions consist of are trying to get bilateral large bore IVs so that that is one less step they have to accomplish in the ER, but I will not stay on scene to accomplish that. Also, I do you know, try to get a cardiac monitor on them. I don't stall to get a full 12 lead. Our protocol does talk about 12 leads for this, but for me, I don't know that that really changes things one way or another. So I will get a four lead to see if maybe they are in a new AFib or just AFib in general, see if that's contributing. But outside of that, just rhythm, I don't think a 12 lead is really gonna change my practice with them. And so yeah, and then we arrive at the ER.
0: Certainly in in our protocol, we have stroke mimics mimics listed there. You know, we have things like hypoglycemia, post dictal paralysis, migraine, overdose, trauma, bell's palsy. So we have these things listed in there. But really, as a medical director, I'm less concerned about the mimics because I'm really worried about the stroke. And I better be absolutely damn sure that I'm not missing a stroke before I call something a stroke mimic. And and so You know, I always use the the story, essentially, you get there, they're confused, they have a facial droop, you put them in your ambulance, you call a stroke alert, you're in route, you're doing these things, you get your blood glucose in route after you've called the stroke alert, and it's 20, and you give them sugar, and they get better, right? Mm -hmm. It's a bummer day for the paramedic feeling that way. But as the physician in the ER, I'm totally fine with that. Meaning, I love that you call the stroke alert, you're on your way, and now you're treating the problem, right? And so there's no problem with kind of getting information as you go and your story changes we this happens to ER docs all the time you know i do a workup and then i call the specialist and they're like clearly that was their problem why did it take you an hour you know well because we were working up other things <laughs> to get to the, the answer so i think that that's fine i certainly wouldn't hang my hat on stroke mimics over a stroke
1: yeah one of the questions i know that i get in training a lot is just speaking of hypoglycemia and stroke rule out is can we give dextrose if we're unsure or we don't have a glucometer, it's broken, you're getting an error. How you know? How does dextrose affect a hemorrhagic stroke if it is a hemorrhagic stroke and are we able to give it if we're unsure?
0: So the brain tissue is picky. It likes a really certain pressure. It likes a certain amount of sugar. And so if you have sugar that is too low or too high, that actually hurts the brain. So both sides of it, when it's not in the normal range, cause problems. So if you had an ischemic stroke or hemorrhagic stroke, and then the patient also is a diabetic that didn't take their insulin and now their sugar is 500, that is significantly detrimental to that brain tissue that was hurt. And obviously if a brain has no sugar, it doesn't like that either and it doesn't function properly.
1: So the short answer to that is it is fine if you're doing a workup and you're unsure about sugar,
0: is it's fine to give the dextrose. Yeah. I mean, I think I would want a number unless I had a clear picture of I think this is a diabetic that's having a problem. If I'm just guessing and I have no number, then I probably would hold off until I can get a number because maybe they're confused because their sugar's six hundred. Maybe they're confused because their sugar's twenty. So I'm gonna create more problems if I don't know the answer.
1: Okay. And how about, are there any good, I know I I also get this question with Mimics, are there any good assessments to rule out or rule in Bell's palsy over a CVA? It doesn't
0: matter. So Bell's palsy really speaks to the anatomy and how your face is innervated. So the upper part of your face, the forehead on each side is innervated by both sides of your brain. The lower part of your face is innervated only by the opposite side of the brain. And so when you have a stroke, if I take out the left side of my brain with a stroke, what I'm going to see is a right-sided facial droop. But because the upper part of the face receives innervation from both sides of the brain, when I had that left-sided stroke, the right side of the brain's function was still preserved. And that was able to give a signal to my forehead to still function. So when I have that stroke, I notice that I have a right lower facial droop. In a Bell's palsy, what happens is the nerve that is actually innervating the facial tissue is what is having the problem. That's where the deficit occurs from a virus or whatever is going on there. And so what I see in a Bell's palsy is both the upper part of the face and the lower part of the face having a palsy at the same time. The tricky part about a Bell's palsy, however, is it can have a lot of different presentations, and it can be tricky at times. And so ultimately, if you're concerned that this might be a stroke, you're not absolutely set that this is a Bell's palsy, then that patient's going to get imaging in the emergency department.
1: And for the pre-hospital providers, then don't get too caught up on it. I mean, just, you know, know that it can present a little differently, but if they're having any facial deficit, just go CBA and we can determine. And and that's what
0: I was getting at with all the mimics, you know, all of these mimics, once you make the determination that they are having an abnormal exam, the disability is abnormal, then you need to be on your way to the hospital. And the mimics, meaning, you know, people always ask about migraine. What if this is a migraine mimic? Well, that's that's almost a diagnosis of exclusion. We we have an answer to tell you whether it's a migraine or not, and that's called an MRI. So mm-hmm. we do an MRI when you had stroke symptoms, and that MRI is normal and shows no signs of stroke. And then we say, oh, the patient has a history of migraines. This might be a migraine, migraine type presentation.
1: So overall, don't get too caught up on these mimics. If you're having an abnormal assessment, go with CVA, which leads us into assessments. So there are, I know there's several different assessments that I've heard of just on the pre-hospital side. And actually I think the hospital uses even a whole different assessment and scoring system for these patients. So we generally use and once again just in this systems I'm in either the Cincinnati or FAST exam, which they're really quite similar. So we generally will start with the Cincinnati or FAST or now there's the BFAST also so we can get the back part of the brain. And so, either BFAST or Cincinnati's are my go-to. There's once again several others, and if they are positive on either one of those quick neuro exams, then we've you know we've got a positive. We start moving. If they're negative on those, but they're still having some type of neuro deficit or or abnormal presentation, I'll go into the MENT, and that one just gives me a few other
0: tools to to assess. And I think you know you were taught a neuro exam in paramedic school. And we were taught a neuro exam in medical school. And then we're given these tools to use, you know, whether it's Cincinnati, whether it's FAST or in the hospital, we're using the NIHSS scale. I still do my normal exam because I'm so used to doing it and I can do it quickly. So even though I'm doing a stroke scale to determine whether they're going to get TPA, I still just do the same physical, physical exam. exam I did when I was you know, resident 20 years ago. And that's because it's just touches each part of the brain. Basically what a complete neuro exam does is it's going to touch each particular function and part of the brain. What we try to do with these scales for the pre-hospital setting is we want them to be easy. For example, for the fast, we want lay people to be able to do this, right? People who don't have any medical training to just make a quick determination to say, hey, this is not normal. We need to do something. And the same is true for the, you know, paramedic on scene. Like I'm showing up. I don't want to be here for a big, long neuro exam. I want a less than one minute neuro exam and know okay. whether we're need to go or not. And obviously if those exams are negative, if you're getting a negative score on these pre-hospital assessments, then you do have a little more time to make a more thorough exam and, and kind of work the problem.
1: Yeah. And I always am a big, I always like to encourage the phone a friend option too. So if you have somebody who isn't meeting any of the criteria on fast, be fast, Cincinnati men, but they're you know, not presenting normally, you can always call for a consult, at least in our agencies here.
0: Remember when you used to call me, you call a friend before we were dating? You were just flirting with me, huh? You just mm-hmm. wanted to talk to me on the phone.
1: No, I really had medical questions. Oh, damn.
0: <laughs> well, it worked out. It worked out in the long run for me anyway. I did it. Um, so let's just talk briefly about the the most common stroke scales. Let's talk about the Cincinnati stroke scale. I actually like the Cincinnati stroke scale because it's so simple. And I always tell paramedics, you know, not to overthink the problem for a stroke alert. So when a hospital says we have a stroke alert or a trauma alert or cardiac alert, and they want you to follow those things, it's really taking pressure off of you, in my opinion, because you don't have to overthink that you saw a facial droop on a Cincinnati score. If you see a facial droop, even if you think it might've been something weird, they would take drugs, they did something else. Don't overthink it. You have a positive Cincinnati scale. That's a stroke alert. You're going to the hospital, and we'll do the further workup once we get there. But the Cincinnati is straightforward. It looks at three things arm drift, facial droop, and abnormal speech. And it's called the Cincinnati score, a stroke scale, because it came out of Cincinnati.
1: Wow. Profound.
0: Profound. (laughs) As did these other ones that we look at as well men's and El Paso. Men's is Miami, though. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah, different different city. But they're trying to promote themselves. Yeah. LA. Yeah,
0: Yeah. They all have something. So the fast the fast exam is essentially the same thing as the Cincinnati. It's facial droop, arm weakness, speech difficulty, and then time to call 911. So this was more designed for someone who doesn't have medical training. You know you see these posters up um, so family members know to call 911. A little expansion on the fast exam is to be fast and what that's adding is balance in the eyes. And if you think about what controls your balance and what controls your eyes, it's the back of your brain, it's the occiput, and it's your posterior circulation. So this is adding posterior circulation to the FAST exam. And I think you said it earlier, both the Cincinnati and the FAST exam aren't really looking at posterior circulation. So if you were having a posterior circulation stroke, you know, you might miss it.
1: Yep. And that's where you're going to see kind of that ataxic gait or some of those odd things. And that's where, of course, BFAS comes in. We're going to catch those now. And when we're doing these assessments, I know also that I always explain to my patient, hey, these, I'm going to ask you to do some funky stuff. Like, I need you to smile big and show me your teeth. And I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and put your arms out. You know, so I, I do always preface it with, I know this is odd, but I, I just need you to follow it. Cause sometimes I'm doing they like look a drunk crazy. driving
0: test, even though I don't think yeah, you're a drunk. road, test, road <laughs> test, yeah.
1: And then once again, we did, we talked about the Cincinnati fast, be fast. Those are all really quick. If there's nothing positive on those, I then go into amend, which we just already discussed is the Miami version and just includes a few extra things. I do ask them to say, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Uh, and I have caught some deficits on just that speech question alone that I didn't get on the, on the slurred speech part. So that it, it does change things up for me a little bit. And I definitely rely on this if Cincinnati and BFAS don't show any positives.
0: So once the patient arrives to the hospital, the paramedics perform their pre-hospital exam. We essentially do a comprehensive neuro exam to determine how bad this stroke is. So it's a gradation of stroke. And we use the National Institute of Health Stroke Scale, and that's the NIHSS. And it has 11 different question components. And then we grade the severity of the stroke based on the points that you get. So for example, when a patient comes in, well, first question is level of consciousness. Are they alert? They get a zero. Are they arousable to minor stimulation? That's a one. Are they obtunded? That's a two. Are they unresponsive? That's a three. So each of these questions is given a score, and that can be either zero to two, zero to three, or zero to four. And then we add these up to get the stroke severity score. And a mild stroke has a score of one to four. If you have a stroke scale of five to 15, that's a moderate stroke a scale of a score of 16 to 20, that's a moderate to severe stroke and 21 to 42, that's a severe stroke.
1: And when you look at the printout of this scoring system, like it, it actually looks to me a little overwhelming, but you guys have an app, right? I think I've seen you in the ER. You can just like each one, it just taps through and calculates it for you, right? So it's actually pretty simple. Yeah, You can you can get this on a phone app
0: that it, it looks more complicated than it is after you, you do it a lot. Like, you know, we do stroke. We do this a lot in the mm-hmm. ER. Um, so you kind of, can get through this really well. And those categories of questions are level of consciousness, gaze, visual fields, facial palsy, motor, limb ataxia, sensory, best language, dysarthria, and extinction. So those are the big categories that we're hitting with the scale. And in the ER, and most ERs, we actually have a, a printout of this because you have to show a patient pictures and they have to read words to the mm-hmm. to you. And so it's in this little laminated, you know, card that you just have in front of you while you're doing it. And then you're showing the patient the pictures and they're explaining it to you and you're getting your scale.
1: Do you think that in systems that have long transport times, this would be a valuable tool for pre-hospital? So say they have a half an hour that they're coming down, you know, in our area that would be coming down a canyon. For half an hour with the patient, do you see value if they pre-hospital could calculate the score and give that to you before they arrive?
0: I mean, hundred percent of the time the ER is going to perform their own exam. Anyways. But you know, what would be valuable is if you were like, Hey, I did the NIHSS and it was 20 and 10 minutes later, I did it again and it's now 10, right? So you, you can see that you're having an the improvement. In the scale. Like, so that's improvement important or- information or it's getting worse. You know, it was a 10 and now it's 20. Yep. But ultimately, the workup in the ER is going to be the same. Okay. So just kind of overlooking what we just talked about, Cincinnati pre-hospital stroke scale, the pros of that is it's easy to do. It's only three items, takes less than a minute. Uh, The cons is it can't measure posterior circulation. The FAST exam, kind of the same, same story there. The MENs, the Miami Emergency Neurologic Deficit exam combines the Cincinnati scale with some components of the NIHSS. It takes a little more time than the Cincinnati scale. Um, and really the cons of that is that we don't have any published data on how effective this is, meaning, is this better than the Cincinnati score?
1: Is this changing outcomes for
0: patients, right? If you decided to be a neurologist, which I don't know why you would decide to be a neurologist, sorry, neurologist.
1: We have some jokes about this. Like, how do you
0: hide a dollar bill from a- Yeah, not from a neurologist, oh, though. dang it. Okay. Yeah, you, I do have- Do you want to hear a joke? Uh-huh. Dollars? I'll give you a couple of dollar jokes. Where do you hide a dollar bill from a radiologist? Don't know. On a light switch. <laughs> Where do you hide a dollar bill from an ER doc? Tell me. Anywhere above the first floor. It's pretty good. Yeah. Where do you hide a dollar bill from a general surgeon? Give it to me. In a textbook. Okay. Where do you had a dollar bill from a cardiovascular surgeon? No idea. You safety pin it to his kid. Oh, <laughs> anyway, we always say in residency, you could sit in the cafeteria and you could just watch people walk by. And I would be like, he's an orthopedic doc. He's an ER doc. He's a neurologist. You could tell like, by the way to look mm-hmm. right. What they wear. Yep. She's a pediatrician. Mm-hmm. Oh, she's wearing scrubs with a vest, a fleece vest.
1: You can often pick firefighters out of a crowd as well.
0: Oh yeah, because they, tat- they have a tattoo of a fire <laughs> <laughs> emblem on them. Well, that gives it away too. <laughs> so, neurologists, getting back to the point, you know, they study all this stuff so they can do a really comprehensive exam and they can tell you what blood vessel is being affected by what the condition is. So, for example, so one of the most common strokes occurs in the middle cerebral artery. And that gives you hemianesthesia, hemiparesis, gives you conjugated deviation of your eyes, visual field cuts, aphasia, apraxia, depending on what side it's on. Apraxia is a difficult with skilled movement. So they test you doing rapid like finger movements and doing things that to say, hey, this is apraxia. The way an ER doc would do this is we would get a scan and <laughs> we would look and see, you know, what blood vessels affected. But you know, these general ideas were anterior circulation, again, is hemiparesis, hemi, hemi anesthesia, apraxia, apathy, which is what you, you know, s- or have chronic apathy. yeah, you have chronic mm-hmm. anterior cerebral so artery check it. occlusion. Posterior circulation is again one of the ones that controls your balance. Hemianopsia—you see visual field cuts uh, from your eyes. So things like that can direct you as to where it is. But really, the take-home message from all of this is, we're not neurologists, and you know I don't want to be a neurologist. So I come back to the really simple things: Do they have a deficit? Can I diagnose it quickly? And then we have to institute treatment to open up that blood vessel as quickly as possible. So pre-hospitally, again, it comes back to minimum time on scene, time is brain, get to the hospital if they need to get there.
1: Don't be afraid to show up without an IV. If you're two minutes away, get them to the hospital, get them there to start. They can do that while they're doing other things. Once yeah, I mean, we can, we can put an it's IV in move.
0: while we're mixing TPA because it takes time to mix it. So yep. again, uh, it's not delaying anything. So the hospital is judged as well and graded on how well and efficient we move the patient through the different steps to get them treatment. So as soon as the patient hits the door, the clock starts. And within 10 minutes of arrival, we need to have just a general assessment done and the CT scan should be ordered. Within 25 minutes, we need to have a complete neurologic assessment done and the CT scan needs to physically be complete. And then at 45 minutes, that scan needs to be interpreted and read. And then the decision is at one hour, Are we giving TPA or not? Are we giving the clot-busting medication? And I will tell you that when I read these numbers, that if we meet this standard, we're actually not doing that well. So most hospitals and stroke centers try to really beat these numbers. Like we do it very fast. And, And for example, our hospital and many of the hospitals around, they have like a landing pad, meaning when EMS arrives to the ER, we don't even go into a room. I meet EMS in the hallway at the landing pad. I do a quick assessment of my ABCs. I might do a quick Cincinnati type test, which is very fast in the hallway. And then they go directly on that pram to the CT scanner and they go get the CT scan so that we're not wasting any time. So if you looked at this time clot, really within 10 minutes, we're getting the CT scan done, interpreted, and a decision point is made.
1: Yeah. And I've definitely seen, this has been a big change in practice just throughout my career that we, we used to go into rooms and hang out in rooms and unload the patient and you know do their thing for a while now we just walk them walk with them straight back to ct so it's been really cool to see that change
0: and i want to go back to that nomenclature slide the one i did earlier where we were talking about different cvas and strokes and we we classified these strokes as either ischemic or hemorrhagic and really what we're trying to do when the patient comes to the hospital and gets taken directly to the ct scan what we're determining is whether the patient has a hemorrhagic stroke or a ischemic stroke That is the reason that we meet you in the hallway and you go directly to the scanner and it does not matter if the patient has an IV because the patient is getting a non-contrast head CT. That means we don't need to give them contrast. We're just going to put them in the scanner and take a picture. And the reason they get that scan first is because a non-contrast head CT is the best at identifying acute bleed. So the information that I want when they come back from the scanner isn't, hey, I think this is a stroke. That's not the answer I'm looking for for the radiologist. All I want the radiologist to tell me is they do not have blood in their brain. This is not a bleeding stroke. And if I get that answer and the patient has a positive exam and they meet the criteria, they're going to get TPA. And so again, that's trying to cut this decision time down. The thing I just read to you is we're supposed to make that decision in an hour and whether we're going to give TPA or not, really in a perfect day, the patient comes in, meet them in the hallway, they go to the CT scanner, they come back, the radiologist calls me and tells me that it's negative. I talk to the neurologist, we decide to institute TPA. It can happen in 15 minutes, yeah. 18 minutes, and they're getting the medication. I was on shift just uh, this week, and my partner, Dr. Whitling, had an 18-minute TPA.
1: So On a young Yeah, 41-year-old, so. Hopefully a good cool. outcome yeah. there, yeah. That's also something, just speaking of that, that I think has been interesting. And I don't know if this, everyone in the world is seeing this, but we've seen an increase in CVAs in our areas, but also an in, increase in the younger population having CVAs. So I think that's just been interesting as well.
0: And that's definitely, you know, potentially COVID related as well. We know yeah. that they have increased thrombotic events with covid I've had a kid with a stroke, so you know yep. it's it's always stressful when you have an eight-year-old and they're like, wow, they're not moving their rights out. Are they faking this out? And I've had that happen a couple of times, so it's, it's a bummer that there's no real age restriction here to people who can have yeah. strokes. Let's talk about the treatment. So if we're looking at the flow, 911 was called, EMS arrives, they get on scene, A, B, C, hit D, disability, they do a quick Cincinnati score. The Cincinnati score is positive. They put them in the ambulance. They're hauling to the hospital. They call a a stroke alert. They do their sugar en route. Sugar is fine. They come to the landing pad in the ER. The ER doc meets them, does a quick ABC, quick disability, and decides to go to the CT scanner directly. The paramedics help load them onto the scanner. The scanner comes back negative, no blood, and they have a positive NIH. The neurologist and ER doc agree that they want to give TPA, and so TPA is given. This is the drug tissue plasminogen activator. And let's talk about this a little bit. So I don't know if you remember in school, but there's a, there's this complicated pathway of how you clot and how you break down clots. And for me, and I think a lot, a lot of ER docs, the actual whole diagram of this is something you learn every 10 years because you have to take your boards every 10 years. So you memorize the whole thing every 10 years, it. but then you kind of forget some of the details. But really what we're looking at is there's two pathways to clotting. There's an intrinsic pathway and an extrinsic pathway. And then that comes into the common pathway, which all is contributing to you making these clots. And so ultimately what happens is prothrombin gets turned into thrombin. Thrombin takes fibrinogen and breaks it into a fibrin monomer. That's just a single piece of fibrin. And then a whole bunch of these monomers get together and it becomes a fibrin polymer. And then that cross-links to make a clot. So this is what's happening when your body gets cut and you start forming a clot. So what TPA does is in the name, it's called tissue plasminogen activator. So this activator binds with plasminogen and it activates it and it turns it into plasmin. And what plasmin does is it cuts apart these cross-linked fibrin clots. So really my TPA is turning plasminogen into plasmin, which is then cutting down the clot or breaking the clot into fiber and degradation products. We can actually measure those in other conditions, but that's what it's doing. I'm just going to go briefly into TPA contraindications. When TPA came out, there was a lot of resistance to the use of TPA. And that was because it is a dangerous drug. TPA is probably one of the most dangerous drugs that we give aside from paralytics, maybe and even more dangerous than paralytics. Meaning, If I give a paralytic and do nothing, the patient's probably going to die. If I give TPA, I can really cause them to have harm because it breaks down clots. It increases your risk of bleeding. So as your brain gets hurt, meaning it's having a stroke because the tissue is dying with no oxygen or nutrients, that tissue becomes very fragile. And the longer it has been without nutrients and oxygen, the more likely it is to bleed. And that's why we have time criteria on how long we can, or what the window is to give TPA. And so the initial studies that came out were really worried about, okay, I want to give TPA, what's the risk of them having a bleed and how long can I give this medication? So the big contraindications to giving someone TPA is really in your head, just think about bleeding risk. So the most recent uh, contraindications are intracranial hemorrhage. So if they have an intracranial hemorrhage, they're not getting TPA. Subarachnoid hemorrhage, they're not getting TPA. Active internal bleeding, so they're having blood in their stool, they have a bleeding diverticuli, something like that, they're not getting TPA. Recent intracranial or interspinal surgery, so that's within three months, or a severe head trauma, they're not going to get TPA. Uh, If they have an intracranial condition that may increase the risk of bleeding, such as having an aneurysm, a tumor, or an AVM, an arterial venous malformation, they're not going to get TPA. And then if they have severe uncontrolled hypertension, I told you that the brain was a prima dominant like pressure in a certain range. So once it starts to get way above that range, it becomes susceptible to bleed if we give this medication. And then if someone has a bleeding disorder as well, we'll hold off.
1: So you're saying if they're bleeding, they don't get TPA. Yeah,
0: that was an easier way to say it. (laughs) All right. Thanks for clearing that up. Let's talk about the time window. So the first study that came out when we started to use TPA was called the NINS trial, and that's the National Institutes of Neurologic Disorders and Stroke. And the window that they used was three hours. So anyone who had onset of symptoms that was more than three hours ago, those patients were not a candidate for TPA. So that's why when we take a history, we're always very you know interested in when did this start? And so we don't want an hour ago? That's not the answer we want. We actually want a time. We want the paramedic and the ER doctor. Everyone should be looking at the clock, talking to the family and saying, oh, you think it started an hour ago? Well, it's currently 1,600. It's currently four. So are you telling me it started at 3 p.m.? And they say yes. So that should go in your documentation. And that's the number that we're using. If grandma went and took a nap for a few hours and now she woke up and we didn't check on her for another few hours and the family comes in and says... Hey, she looks like she's having a stroke. And I say, when did you last, or when did you notice the symptoms? They're like, we we don't know. She was sleeping. You're going to go with the time that she went to bed. So the longest possible window. So if someone went to bed last night at 9 PM, the onset of symptoms were 9 PM last night. That's what you're going to use at your time window. So additional studies started to look at that and one was in Europe european cooperative acute stroke study that's the ecas study and i'm throwing these terms around because if you read in textbooks they refer to them and so that's what these names are coming from so what ecas 3 did was extend that window from 3 hours to 4.5 hours and that's why if you're a practicing paramedic for some time or er doc you know these numbers have changed we used to have in our protocols 3 hours and now we have 4.5 hours and that's because we have a new study to base the treatment on. There's a whole different piece of this, which we'll get into, is that once I have a patient come to the ER, go to the scanner, come back to the ER with no bleed, and we decide to give TPA, that TPA is given. That first phase of treatment is complete, but now I'm not done. What I need to determine is, would they be a candidate to have their blood vessels either directly infused with tpa like so i go to the clot and put the clot busting medicine right there where it is in their brain or do they need a rotor rooter procedure to pull that clot out so that's my next decision point so now once the tpa is given i send the patient back to the ct scanner and in our facility we do a ct angiogram of the head and neck and what that means angiogram is we're going to shoot dye up into their brain and their neck and we're going to look at the blood vessels and we're going to look and see if they have an occlusion that we can see on the imaging and if that's the case, then that patient is potentially a candidate to have an interventional procedure, and that's interarterial TPA, or do this clot-busting rotor procedure. And so if you guys are ever bringing patients in the ER, you're wondering why we're doing the scans the way we're doing. That is the flow of this process, is coming to the ER, going to the scanner, determining if they have a bleed non-contrast study. They get TPA, and now we're going to do a CT angiogram to determine if they need to go, in our case, to a comprehensive stroke center because my facility does not do this. So once they go to the CT angio and they come back, if I get a positive result, we're calling the helicopter because they're going to fly to a comprehensive stroke center.
1: And how often do these patients who receive that initial IV TPA, how often do they end up then getting shipped out in your case? to a comprehensive center for further tre- intervention. Is that often? Yeah, or it's often. does, I would say it's does often. the IVTPA generally take care of it?
0: No, I think that um, they often get, and I, I'm not going to give you exact number, but it's not a rare circumstance that they then, we then find something and we send them down to have a stroke neurologist, a specialist at the comprehensive center determine what they want to do and an interventionalist, you know, do their procedure.
1: So IV tPA is not the end all, be all to getting rid of that clot.
0: No, they certainly could get more treatment. So okay. that's the first major step in the treatment. Okay. Um, sometimes the IV TPA, like you said, yeah, it is done, but they often need more. Okay. The last thing I want to touch on that you might have heard about is there is some push to have essentially regional stroke care and regional algorithms for EMS. And so I know they talk about this in, in Colorado. And the idea is, is that it, is it more beneficial for a patient that is in the field to go to a comprehensive stroke center directly? when they have a large vessel occlusion. So you hear this term LVO, large vessel vessel occlusion. Is it better to bypass a smaller hospital, which could give TPA and just directly go to a more comprehensive stroke center? And that is a push by stroke neurologists to say they oftentimes think that, that is a better option to get that definitive care quicker, meaning all those treatment options and modalities. And this isn't a universal, meaning everyone is not doing this and they're still working out what is the best kind of, stroke exam to do pre-hospitally to determine whether they have an LVO or not. But it's certainly in the works and people are talking about it.
1: Okay, I know this is a hot topic in our area as well, because we used to just have a one hospital in town. And now we're starting to get multiple hospitals in town with different capabilities. And so now it's really become this hot topic of do we bypass one to go to the other? Who's qualified for what? And it's it's just become a
0: and obviously, we're you know we're dealing with two things here. What I always focus on is patient outcome. That, that is what I care about. I want to make sure that the patient is getting the perfect outcome. You do have pressures and forces, though, in this day and age in medical healthcare systems that hospitals don't want to be bypassed, right? They don't want to not give a patient TPA because that's a pretty big ticket item to do. And then when you have multiple hospitals in the same area, all vying for these patients and Trying to get the business essentially. This we saw this previously in trauma, right? So I'm mm-hmm. gonna bypass a level three to go to level one, or do I bypass a level two to go to level one? And the level ones are all pushing. Absolutely, you do that because we want all that business. But you know, you gotta as a provider try to figure out what you think is the best for the for the patient. And, and that's the route I recommend, obviously.
1: Yeah. Always,
0: always what's best for the patient. Hey, well, I hope you enjoyed the lecture on CVA on our awesome anniversary. I can't imagine a better way to spend an anniversary. Can you Steph? that talking?
1: Chivalry's not dead. Yeah,
0: just, let's just crush some more he medicine.
1: so romantic, everyone.
0: I'm going to have to figure out what I'm doing after this. <laughs> Hopefully pouring <laughs> me a martini. <laughs> do something. If you have any questions, just go to our website, drsovendahl.com. Um, we have all the previous Match on a Fire, Medicine, More podcast there. Coming soon is 300 Training Group. That's our training site. Also has all these podcasts on there you'll be able to get CME credits for any of the podcasts that you listen to. That is coming out probably in the next month. So if you want to go to that website, that's 300training.com. And again, if you go there you know right now, you might get the old website, but the new site is coming live in the next month. So I uh, hope you tune into that stuff, and thanks for listening. See ya. I'm Shannon Sovendahl, and that's our show. Thanks for tuning in to Match on a Fire Medicine and More. If you have any questions, shoot me an email at shannon at matchonafire.com. And if you're enjoying the show, head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Thanks. We appreciate you listening.